the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Steve Jones of Martin Law on American Electric Power Company versus Connecticut. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Stephen G. Jones is a partner at Martin Law in Seattle, Washington. His practice includes representation of both private and public clients on environmental review and permitting under NEPA, its state equivalent SEPA, as well as under Washington's Growth Management Act. He's currently working on permitting expansion of the largest composting facility in the Pacific Northwest, using anaerobic digestion to generate electricity through cogeneration using captured methane from the new digesters. Mr. Jones has extensive trial and appellate experience before both the state and federal courts. He's represented both public and private clients under the state and federal Superfund laws and has represented both plaintiffs and defendants in nuisance actions. He currently serves on the president-elect of executive board of the Washington State Bar Environmental Land Use Section. Steve, it's good to have you here. Thanks for being with us on this LexisNexis Legal Podcast. Well, it's my pleasure to participate. Thank you. The U.S. Supreme Court coming out June 20th, 2010, with its decision in the case American Electric Power Company versus Connecticut, a case a good number of people were waiting for and one that's caused a great deal of discussion since. Give us a little bit of of the the background of this case and and how it wound up before the high court. Well, the case was originally filed all the way back in 2004. There were um, eight states, Connecticut, New York, California, Iowa, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Vermont, Wisconsin, and also the city of New York and then two nonprofit land trusts who sued four different private utilities and also the Tennessee Valley Authority. What they did is they brought nuisance claims seeking to hold the utilities jointly and severally liable for global warming. That was the way they framed their complaint. Um, That case was initially dismissed in the Southern District of New York by District Judge Loretta Preska. She dismissed it for political question grounds, and then the Second Circuit reversed her. And it was the Second Circuit decision that was um, ultimately reviewed by the Supreme Court. Talk a little more about the elements of the Second Circuit decision that went up on appeal before the Supreme Court. Well, the Second Circuit reversed Judge Preska's decision that political questions, that this case presented um, non-justiciable political questions. I'm just going to say political questions, so I won't stumble on justiciable. Um, They said, no, this case has political implications, but that doesn't mean that we as federal judges can't adjudicate it. And they said that the federal common law of nuisance was appropriate for dealing with those cases. And they also said that the states and the nonprofit land trusts in the city of New York also had standing. So both the standing issue and the um, justiciability, the political question issue, went up. The Second Circuit, they issued their decision in 2007, and this was right at the time that Massachusetts versus EPA had been issued by the Supreme Court, and EPA had not yet taken action to govern greenhouse gases. And one of the things that the Second Circuit said was important was that neither Congress nor EPA had acted. And so that was one of the the main issues that went to the Supreme Court was, is EPA the body that has regulatory authority for greenhouse gases? And if so, what does that mean for these plaintiffs' claims? 
Well, how did the Supreme Court uh, address the political question issue? Well, what they did is they reversed the, the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit had said these are not um, political questions. They can be adjudicated. And on the standing issues, the Supreme Court ironically split, which is kind of a funny thing given that there are nine members of the court. What happened is Justice Sotomayor was on the Second Circuit panel that had heard the case. By the time the decision had been written, she had been elevated to the Supreme Court. But because she had served on the Second Circuit panel that had heard the case, she recused herself. That left the remaining justices, eight justices, and they split four to four. And what happened is, um, and I'm reading a portion of, of Justice Ginsburg's opinion, she said, I'm quoting now, four members of the court would hold that at least some plaintiffs have Article Three standing under the Massachusetts decision. And then later she said, four members of the court adhering to the dissent in Massachusetts would say that none of the plaintiffs had Article Three standing. And that, in other words, that they couldn't address those questions. Because the case came up and the justices split four to four, they affirmed the Second Circuit and said what that meant as a practical matter is that these plaintiffs do have standing, and that was a very hard-fought battle. So to have that be effectively punted as a result of a four-to-four split is a very interesting result. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the reviews of the decision have focused on the court's rejection of the notion that climate change claims cannot be pressed as common law nuisance claims. Can you elaborate a bit more on those issues? Well, yeah, this was uh, a very important decision in a lot of different areas in the country. There have been cases that have raised common law claims for the regulation or the um, adjudication of greenhouse gas impacts in the Fifth Circuit, in the Fourth Circuit. There was currently a case pending in the Ninth Circuit, and then this case obviously came out of the Second Circuit. So there had been a lot of attempts by plaintiffs to bring uh, nuisance claims, asserting claims um, based on climate change impacts that arose from greenhouse gases. And like I said, the question really, when it hit the Second Circuit, EPA had not acted. The Massachusetts versus EPA opinion had just come down from the Supreme Court. Since that time, EPA had taken a number of um, regulatory actions and issued what's been called its endangerment finding. That was issued in December of 2009, finding that greenhouse gases actually were, they could be regulated under the Clean Air Act. And then since that time, They've issued tailpipe emission standards, um, a tailoring rule, a rule that regulates state PSD programs, but that stands for um, prevention of significant deterioration. The point being that EPA has acted in a significant way, and that's really been stepped up since the Obama administration came into office. As I noted earlier, the Second Circuit relied on EPA's inaction and also pointed to the fact that Congress had not taken this issue and acted affirmatively to say, well, we don't have a separation of powers issue because Congress isn't acting and the executive branch isn't acting, and so the courts can't act. An interesting um, wrinkle on this case was that when the petition of certiorari was filed by the defendants, the utilities, the Solicitor General, the Obama administration Solicitor General, actually joined in that saying, we think that this case should be taken up, but we think it should be reversed because EPA has acted. And that was actually ultimately what the decision was. Um, on the merits, rather than the 4-4 split on standing, it was an 8-0 to decision, a unanimous decision, 
saying that EPA's regulatory action showed that Congress has delegated regulatory authority for greenhouse gases to EPA, and that as a result of EPA actually taking that action, these plaintiffs could not pursue a common law nuisance claim, but would have to pursue their claims either through a um, review of EPA's actions or through other veins. And there were issues from the Second Circuit opinion that were not taken up on appeal before the Supreme Court. What about those issues? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, The plaintiffs had brought claims under federal common law, but they'd also asserted state law claims, state law nuisance claims, and also state law statutory claims, which would be different in in different states. Because Judge Prescott dismissed that claim, or dismissed the plaintiff's claims on political question grounds, those issues were not briefed, whether, namely the, the issues of the validity of the state law claims. And so the Supreme Court, recognizing that those claims had not been briefed either at the trial court level, the district court level, or before the Second Circuit, remanded to the Second Circuit to have the Second Circuit decide if those state law claims remained valid after the decision dismissing the federal common law claims. So that that's issue's gone back down on remand and will be addressed later by the Second Circuit. I was going to ask if there had been any subsequent action by the Circuit Court on that issue. It's been remanded, and that'll be those remaining issues will be briefed before the Second Circuit. It's it's conceivable, it's possible procedurally that they could actually remand it all the way back to the trial court, yeah. but the remand for the Supreme Court actually just went to the Second Circuit. Okay. How is ongoing litigation going to be impacted? by the Supreme Court's AEP decision? Well, as I noted, there had been a number of cases filed in a number of different circuits, and they've had a variety of, of success or failure. The claims, there were claims in the Fourth Circuit that were rejected on along similar grounds, where the Fourth Circuit, uh, in a decision affirming a that was brought against TVA, not, not exactly this, but they, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority was sued, and the Fourth Circuit said, we feel like this area of law has been delegated to EPA, and so we're not going to allow those common law claims to be pursued. The Fifth Circuit, in a really kind of procedural uh, nuance, which is beyond the scope of what we're talking about here, they uh, dismissed claims. However, the Second Circuit let them go, and the Ninth Circuit hasn't dealt with them. This decision would effectively say that the Ninth Circuit decision is moot at this point. Those claims would not survive. However, based on the remand, it's still apparent that claims can be brought under state common law. It's also conceivable that state statutory law could form a basis of the claims. And that takes us all the way back to the very first thing we were talking about, which is standing. Right. One of the most important things that, that hasn't really been talked about too much in different reviews that I've read of this decision has been that the 4-4 split by the justices effectively says that these kind of plaintiffs, both states, cities, and private plaintiffs, because remember there were land trusts who were plaintiffs, have standing to pursue those claims. They can't pursue them as federal common law claims, but they do have standing to pursue them. And so while the decision effectively forecloses one area of law for plaintiffs to pursue, it says you can pursue claims, you just can't pursue these claims. And so in that vein, it actually opens up or allows to have go forward some of the existing cases, just using different vehicles to press those claims. Pulls the door closed, but doesn't shut it completely. 
Yes, that's a very good way to describe it. From a broader perspective, what do you think some of the potential implications are of this decision? One of the interesting things from my perspective is that Congress has been, some would say unwilling, some would say unable to act on the regulation of greenhouse gases. A cap-and-trade bill has been proposed in the last two or three sessions of Congress. It's never gotten any traction. Right. We've been talking about that for some time. We have. And um, what makes that an interesting fact is that in the last Congress, there was a move by the Republican members, not all of them, but some of the more ardent Republicans, to remove EPA's regulatory authority over greenhouse gases. That was done straight up in in one bill, and then it was done as part of a budget-cutting measure in another bill. Uh, Ultimately, that did not succeed, but were it to succeed, were that uh, approach to gain some traction, it would really have a significant impact because, remember, the Supreme Court here said, you can't pursue a common law claim because EPA has regulatory authority. So if EPA's regulatory authority is taken away by Congress, then these claims would be revived. So that's one potential implication, just given congressional action that was was from the last session. Um, And as we've already talked about, the the nature of this decision, while it does, to use your term, close the door on one avenue, it opens it on another by saying that these kind of plaintiffs, and and I'm being very particular, states and a city and private plaintiffs Mm -hmm. have standing to pursue not common law federal claims, but they could pursue state law claims, it does, in effect, open up another avenue uh, for plaintiffs to try and make these climate change claims stick in other ways. Have you heard of any actions uh, along those lines filed by uh, you know, such parties? It's interesting that the state law claims would be unique to the various jurisdictions where they'd be brought, and, and there definitely are state law nuisance claims being brought for climate change, and there are definitely also not just common law nuisance claims, but other climate change-related uh, litigation that's being advanced by some plaintiffs, such as the Central Center for Biological Diversity, has used climate change impacts as a way to argue for uh, listings or impact uh, or regulation under the ESA, saying this is evidence that these species are being impacted and it needs to be taken account as a way to, to really pursue those. I've also seen those kind of claims raised in terms of even planning decisions and land use decisions where both state agencies or regional agencies uh, have to take account of climate change impacts in making their planning decisions and in in reviewing projects to see whether or not they're going to, to be assessed. The final area where this is being raised is in environmental review. States that have the state law equivalent of NEPA, and I've seen claims being raised under NEPA, where um, greenhouse gas impacts are being advocated as a environmental impact that has to be assessed in an environmental impact statement, whether that's under the federal NEPA statute or whether state law equivalents such as CEQA in California or SEPA in Washington. And those are all cases that we could do a, another entire program on. Oh. Yes, yes, those are those are broad enough. They're well beyond the scope of what we can talk about today. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can have you back to, to do a, an entire program just on that. I'd appreciate the opportunity. Well, I certainly appreciate you being here with us today to give us your analysis of the AEP case that was 
decided by the Supreme Court back in June of 2010 and its potential implications. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Steve Jones of Martin Law in Seattle. Thank you for listening to this LexisNexis legal podcast. Visit the LexisNexis communities at www.lexisnexis.com community. Registration is free. The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast, copyright 2011 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Severe Incorporated. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.